0: All creation longs for the coming of its king. We join with creation looking forward to the arrival of the kingdom. We gather to share stories of God's faithfulness. To celebrate what he's done in the past and to anticipate his coming again. We look forward in hope. This is Advent, where we prepare to welcome the King. Father,
1: we ask for your presence, for you to make it known. For you to speak to us and for you, by your Holy Spirit's power, to make Jesus present to us in the words of Scripture this morning. For your people to be uh, equipped to be able to go out and live one more week in light of knowing that you, Jesus, are the King. Amen. Good morning. Uh, Good to see you guys. My name is Jake, and uh, I'm excited to jump into Advent with you today. We are going to start off in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When I was 11 years old, my parents split up, and when they did, the holidays, they did everything they could to make... Thanksgiving and to make Christmas, the New Year's, all the holidays as meaningful and special to us as they could in light of what was going on in our family. And so my mom, she started the tradition of making a white elephant like a competition and she would... she would kind of stack the deck. She'd go and buy really incredible gifts and then mix them into like the terrible gifts. And so you always wanted to play White Elephant because it was going to be the most epic thing going on on Christmas Eve. And for whatever reason, she thought it was awesome to buy us all, me and my brothers, a pair of underwear. And we thought it was hilarious the first year. And then every year afterwards, she bought us the same thing until it was like 19 years old, I think, maybe older. And so... I appreciated it, you know. I always knew I was going to get it. So, and then my dad, he was really all about making Christmas into a movie day in pajamas. My grandma, my dad's mom, would get us pajamas the same time every year. And grandma, if you're hearing this, I really still wouldn't, I wouldn't mind if I still got pajamas, even though I'm a grown man. But that's, that's okay if you watch this, Grandma. But My mom and dad, they would go out of their ways to make Christmas and uh, to make Thanksgiving really special to us. But there was one thing, especially when I was younger, that would make the holidays really sad. And to be honest, I kinda just wanted to get through them anyways and get past them. The family dinner table. Because it didn't matter whether I was at my dad's house, my mom wasn't there. If I was at my dad's house, my, or if I was at my mom's house, my dad wasn't there. There's something about the family uh, table at holidays for 360-something days of the year. You don't really think it's a ton about who sits at that table. And then whatever it is, with the holidays, it becomes this moment where we begin to think, who belongs at the family? And so whether it's the, the family table is set and there are people there that, honestly, you kind of wish weren't there, the crazy uncle, <laughs> or maybe it's those who aren't there they really wish were, the seats that are empty that were filled last year. Or maybe it's the people that you're with that you, you genuinely love, but the events of the last year have made it so awkward it's barely able to have a conversation. You just want to get the food down and get out of there as fast as you can, I've heard stories in the last couple of months of people dreading to go home for the holidays at times because of how this year is shaken down. The family dinner table for us represents in some ways who belongs at the family table, which is what we're going to talk about today. Who belongs at Jesus' family table? If he were to set the Thanksgiving feast, and if he were to set the, the, the Christmas meal, who would he invite? Who would he say sits at the table? And what family does Jesus belong to? And so we're going to begin our series of Advent, which is going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them giving a different introduction as to who Jesus is and a new way to welcome The king. Matthew's gospel, which we're gonna be looking at today, starts off with the genealogy. It is the part of scripture that I know all of you are the most familiar with because you've skimmed through it the most. And so we're gonna pick up in Matthew 1, verse 1, when Josh told me, Hey, do you wanna preach during Advent? I was like, Oh my gosh, I've been wanting to preach at Advent since I started preaching here. He's like, Great, you gotta do Matthew? It's gonna be the genealogies. I said, are you mad at me? Is it the mustache? Like, are you like, you just really like ticked at me or something? I, I know I look ridiculous, but you know, I'm like in my 30s, I gotta try it once. And so once we got past that and I started doing the work, I began to see that Matthew's gospel, the genealogies. If we slow down enough to hear these names, it's gonna tell us who belongs at Jesus' family table. It's going to show us who, when he sets the feast, gets to sit. It's going to show us what's his family like. So let's pick it up. In Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, here it goes. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of, of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishon, and Nishon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king." Only one section, we got two more to go, but we'll get through them. <laughs> what we're going to see today is that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the hope of the Exile. He is the son of Abraham. In fact, it's mentioned in the introduction, it's mentioned in the lineologies, and it's also mentioned at the very end in the conclusion. Matthew wants us to know very specifically that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Why? In Jewish genealogies, it worked a little bit differently for, for what we might expect. This is not so much concern with who Jesus' uh, DNA gets passed down through. The lineages in the Jewish telling would have shown as a way how to string stories together. In fact, in the book of Genesis, it uses the word genealogy, and then it follows it not with a list of names, but a story of how God creates the earth. And so it is a way for us to get from the early stories of Israel all the way down to Jesus. Why does it matter that Jesus is the son of Abraham? This lineage, this long list of names, which for us can be a little bit confusing as to why it matters, is far less like Ancestry.com. It's a little bit more like the first time I brought Lexi home for the holidays, And my mom's excited, and she cooks the meal, and we laugh. And when we're done, she pulls out this box, this cardboard box, and out of it comes albums. And my mom goes, do you want to see what Jake looked like as a baby? And of course, my wife goes, yes! And then they spend the hours of going through picture after picture, and my mom is walking through and showing people in the family how we're connected as a way to tell my story of how you got to little baby Jake. This is not so much of the how we get down to the DNA, but far more of telling the story that Jesus belongs to. Matthew is like my mom, walking us through the family albums of Jesus. When we hear Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we're expected to go back and think about these stories. So why Abraham? When we go all the way back to Abraham and his story, Abraham has been called by God, and there's this moment where I'm guessing Abraham can't sleep. He has this vision, it says, and it brings him outside of his tent. I'm guessing everybody's still asleep in the middle of the night. It's in the middle of Canaan, this territory, kind of like the wilderness. And I, he, it says he walks outside, and imagine the stars are as visible and clear as you never could have imagined. I mean, there's no light pollution, so it probably looks like the scene from like a sci-fi movie, and Abraham is standing there, and God comes up to Abraham, and he goes, Abraham, count the stars. And so I imagine Abraham's like, okay. Maybe he gets like 20, and he's like, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? Ha ha, God, I can't count them. And God's like, exactly. So will be your offspring. We need to know that Jesus is tied to Abraham because Abraham is the originator of the people and the story of Israel. He's is the one that God came to and said, I will bless you and your family, Abraham, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless your offspring and turn them into a nation so that through them, the world's going to get fixed. That is the plan of God. We need to know that Jesus is tied to Abraham because this is the story that he belongs to. Matthew wants us to think of this story. This is the beautiful beginning to the promise. This is kind of like the moments in our family history where when things do eventually get rough, we think about fondly as the good old times or the places that we really just wish we could get back to, the homes that we had the best memories in. For me, I had a photograph of my parents when they were still together, and it was a snow day, and so we were all bundled up in all this clothing, me, all my brothers, my mom, and my dad together at the last house that we lived in together in the cabin, and our two black lab dogs, and we we're all cuddled together in snow. It was this beautiful picture, and I kept that picture for a couple of years after they got divorced. And then one day, when my sadness and confusion eventually turned into anger, I took that frame and I smashed it and I broke the glass and I destroyed the photo. Because the memento, the memory of what began as good began to turn into something that was bitter. And Matthew wants us to remember the beauty of the promise of Abraham because what we are about to get into is a spiral of mess that won't get fixed until Jesus Because Jesus will ultimately be the one who fulfills the promise. Jesus is the one who's going to bring it all back together. But as soon as we get through Abraham and we get into the next names, things are going to get messy. And we see that first in three great grandmas of Jesus. We got in here, first we have have Rahab, we have Ruth, and we have Tamar. Tamar is the story uh, about Judah, and Judah had this idea that he would go and sleep with a prostitute, which just so happened to be Tamar in disguise, and then in a moment of hypocrisy, Judah, when he finds out that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant by him without him knowing, decides, hey, I'll go have her burned alive until she confronts him. That's Jesus' great-great-grandma. The next in the line is Rahab, who was the uh, brothel owner at the time, the prostitute in the land of Canaan when Israel came in to Jericho, great-great-grandma of Jesus. And then we got Ruth, who is the Moabite refugee who only survives by clinging onto the welfare system of Israel. And so we get these three grandmas, and each of them teach a little something for us about who Jesus is and what people he belongs to. First, they keep the story honest. If you just go through here and you just had Judah, you might have been thinking that maybe it was just a good name and moving right along, but Matthew wants us to remember the mess. And the great grandmas of Jesus, they keep it honest. They keep it honest and they keep the family line going on. What we also learn from them is who belongs at the family table. According to this, and according to going through just this first section of genealogy, the ones that are a part of Jesus' line and his family are the shady uncles, the women with dark pasts, the prostitutes, the outsiders, the foreigners, the ones that don't belong. That is Jesus' family, the messy family table. The grandmas give us hints of who Jesus is going to bring together. How many of us wish that we were born into a different family? When we think about the mess, I think it would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with this mess and if I wasn't belonging into this family. Maybe we idealize the perfect scenario and quite honestly, when we read the lineage of the great and mighty King Jesus, the God incarnate, we probably were not expecting this. We would idealize it as almost like an elitist type line, but this family is messy. God's family is as messy as our family. That could actually be pretty hopeful for us. In spite of thinking of what family we wish we could belong to, Jesus has stepped in and identified with these people. Matthew is very intentional with this genealogy. He could have included or discluded any of the names he wanted to, but he shows Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the one who will come in and fulfill the promise. He is the one that will heal this family who started off so good. And even though it goes through mess, Jesus is not afraid of identifying with our mess and with your messy family history. That is who he is as the Messiah. And that is why we need to know that Jesus is the son of Abraham. But he's also the son of David. So Matthew, just like my mom, flips open the album and continues to move forward down the photographs pointing at different people in the family story. David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And it goes all the way down until we get Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. David's name in this genealogy, interestingly, is meant to count twice. It is the rise to David, the rise fall from David, and again, he gets emphasized at the end that Jesus is the son of David. Why? Why does it matter that Jesus is the son of David? Well, back to the family album. At this point in Israel's history... David has already defeated Goliath. You got that epic story that everyone likes to fantasize and make into this epic tale of how this young boy killed a giant basically with his, like, rock-skipping skills somehow. (laughs) That plus the power of God means defending the people of God. And so David uh, defeats Goliath. He becomes the king, and there's this beautiful moment where it seems like that promise of Abraham is going to get fulfilled. The people of God are together as one giant nation. And they finally have rest from their enemies. And then there's this moment in David's kingdom, in his time, where the ark, the very thing that represented the presence of God, gets brought into the city of Jerusalem. And so David has this moment. I'm guessing probably he woke up in the middle of the night and was like, (gasps) and he runs to Nathan the prophet, and he goes, Nathan, Nathan, I live in a house that's built out of cedar, a beautiful house, but the Lord's tabernacle is is a tent. I got to build God something beautiful. And Nathan's like, yeah, of course, go do that. And then Nathan goes and God talks to him. Nathan comes back. He's like, just kidding. God said something else. And so he tells David what God says. And like usual, God begins to outdo far beyond us what we think we're going to promise him, he outdoes with his promises. And so he tells David in 2 Samuel, when your days, David, are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son God promises David I'm going to give you an offspring that will sit the throne forever He will rule in justice and in equity he will defend the people of God from their enemies he will be a good king that will be after my heart, and he will be to me a son, and I will be to him a father. This dynasty that you've set up, David, I will keep it going forward, and it will be through this offspring of your body. That is the promise that God makes to David. And so for a moment we think, well, maybe it's a son. Solomon, right? Matthew says David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Could have avoided that story. It's quite an embarrassing one because it's directly after God promises this beautiful promise that King David decides that his best plan of action as a king is to go and sleep with someone who isn't his wife and then to cover it up, use his political power to murder the man who was married to that woman so then he could go take his wife. Immediately in the history of Israel, it's this moment where it's like, I don't think it's that king. And what Matthew wants us to remember that moment for is because he wants to create a tension. A tension that God has created a promise that he still has, has not delivered on yet. God promised to Abraham that your family would be a blessing, But the very moment that David sins, the next, all the sons that come in his line, Rehoboam, Asaph, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, all the names are like a rapid fire list of the history of Israel's kings, which basically go like this. David sins, then his son sins worse than him, then his son sins even more. It turns into civil war. Brother is killing brother. Murder, adultery, all of it goes rampant all over the place. It is chaos. If Abraham's lineage was the bumpy start, this is the downward spiral. This is where the family is getting split and torn apart. This is where the family of David becomes a mirror for our own family brokenness. Where we experience divorce, abandonment the tension and the frustration of split families and trying to keep them together, all these things that we see are nothing original to our sin and our brokenness. Israel has it in its story first. It is a mirror because we too have fathers who commit adulteries, siblings who split the family apart, cheating moms and dads, wicked grandfathers, fathers who sin and then sons who continue to sin in a pattern again and again and again. It's evident at this point in the genealogy that Israel needs help. The reason we have that list of names of kings that we might not be familiar with is it is a long list that says, no matter what king comes, Israel keeps spiraling down. We need help. We need a king. We need a king. And if we stop the lineage here, then we might ask Did God fail his promise? God promised to fix the world through Israel. Did he fail? If you stop the lineage here, yes. If Jesus does not come at the end of the line of kings, yes, God did fail to deliver in his promise. It is all hopeless for this family because they were supposed to be the blessing and now they have turned into a curse, they were supposed to be so attractive that the world would want to see them and know God through them. And yet now they have become chaos, civil war, turmoil, and brokenness. Jesus is the Son of David because we need a better king. And he is that king. He is the one king who will bring peace. He is the one whose kingdom will go on forever. He will be the king that will conquer not just Goliath, but Satan and sin and death and everything that tears our families apart that makes us relate to the brokenness of this. He is the king. He is the one that darkness cannot stand against. He is the son of David, and he is so much better than King David, amen? He is the son of David, the true son. But... We got to get from David to the Messiah, and there's still a lot more mess. Jesus is the hope of exile. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, and they skipped down some of those names, even though I guess I know you already know them. And you get down to Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This genealogy outlines the fall of the empire all the way down to the exile. The kingly line is over. No, no longer is Israel warring and civil war against one another. Now Babylon has come in completely destroyed them as a nation, killed their men who could fight back, and taken everybody who was left over into another country that they don't even know. How are they supposed to be a blessing to the nations? They don't even have their own land anymore. This is the darkest moment in the family history line. You see it in some of those names. You see Jeconiah and his brothers, which is supposed to be a symbol of just like Judah and his brothers, where the 12 tribes of Israel have landed, is cursed and hopeless. And you get some of the interesting names in here, like Achim and Zadok, which I would love to tell you their stories, but we don't know who they are. It has gotten so bad that now the genealogy has kind of fizzled out into the wastelands of history. The mundane, the forgotten, who we don't even know who they are. That is how hopeless it has now gotten in the history of Israel. The gravity of the situation is usually lost on us when it comes to the story of Israel because when we look at the Old Testament, when we read it, usually you look at it as like an interesting curiosity from a distance, but it's pretty confusing how to connect with the stories of the kings. We kind of treat the Old Testament as if I were to come and tell you, hey, a plane crashed 30 years ago in another country you've never heard of. You'd be like, sad, I guess. <laughs> I guess I should feel bad. I don't, I don't know. With a, with a distance to it. But what if we were to see the history of Israel like a, pl- a family going on vacation and getting on a plane ride to go to paradise. I mean, think of the most beautiful location that you would want to visit with your family, the, the beautiful beaches. And so you and your family get onto this plane and you're all talking and you're, you're excited because of the promise of what would come on the other side of the plane ride, Right? And the plane takes off and so you're talking with one another and everybody smiles and the flight attendants come through and you notice that they start to bicker and argue. And you're like, well, that's interesting. And they go back up and you're like, okay. And there's a little turbulence and you're like, oh, all right. Well, we'll get there safely. We'll get there safely. And then you hear screaming matches from the front cabin and out of the cockpit stumbles the co-pilot and he's drunk. At that point, you and your family are like, oh my gosh, are we going to get to the place we need to go? And then they go back inside and, and the stewards try to get, get the co-pilot back in there and cover it up, pretend like nothing is happening and it's not a disaster. And you and your family, meanwhile, are holding each other's hands really hard, going like, oh my gosh, this is really terrifying. A couple more bumps of turbulence and then you hear gunshots. You realize that the co-pilot has killed the pilot as he stumbles out into the aisle and dies, they're right in front of you. Also, the co-pilot has shot one of the engines and now the plane is starting to plummet down to the earth, spiraling out of control, it's pandemonium. The hostesses are stepping all over everybody, everybody's screaming and bam, the crash landing, that is exile. If Israel doesn't get out of exile, you and I have no hope. It's not just some story where we go like, that's a sad ending. God told Abraham, it is through you that I will bless all nations. If Israel fails, we have no hope. If their story ended there, we would have nothing to gain and we would be hopeless in the world with no God to come and save us. With Israel, the world is at stake. With Israel, you and I are at stake. And so when we are sitting there in exile with Israel, the plane completely crash-landed, plummeted, and there's no hope of not only thinking about getting to the promised land destination, but even the idea that you could even survive is on your mind. That is where we are left with these names before we get to Jesus. Some of us are dreading the holidays coming up. If we could avoid them altogether, we probably would for some of us. The confusing time, the frustrations, maybe some of the people there, it's in those moments where our family history and the brokenness really begins to push us and test us. But I have heard some stories, church, from you guys, of people knowing the love of Jesus and being willing to step into the messy family, knowing that it is in the hopelessness that there the love of Christ can shine. Because in the lineage here, Jesus shows up in the midst of exile. The final lines of this moment here are all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. And there's a lot loaded into this. It's kind of a cool way of Matthew basically saying 14, 14, 14. Or double seven, double seven, double seven. Seven, fullness, three time in Jewish ideology and numerology. Seven being the number of fulfillment, completeness. What Matthew is saying is in the midst of exile, now is the fullness of time. Now is the moment where the Messiah has come. It is in the midst of the brokenness and the hopelessness that God will give his son, born of Mary. It is in the midst of the exile and the darkest moments you can't imagine God ever to begin working is when the son of Abraham and the son of David truly comes and fixes all things. God can work like that. I know that there are, there are moments where it's healthy to have boundaries within the family brokenness, but I'm encouraged by some of the stories I've already been hearing even this morning of people seeing the messy family and then choosing to step into it and remain into it knowing that's where God can work. And that is where we need Jesus to step in for our own stories. The book, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham because he is showing, here comes Jesus. He's going to get the promise back on track. He is the son of David because he is the king that we all were waiting for, not just Israel. He's the one that will put the family back together. And he is the hope of exile because even in the darkest moments, then God sends the light of his son, Here's where Matthew and my mom are different, which Matthew is probably, there's a lot of reasons that he's probably different than my mom, but my mom isn't starting off the, the, the book, I was going to say phone book, the picture book, or the, photo album, there we go, photo album, my mom was not going to start off the photo album with my wife saying, oh my gosh, let me tell you about who belongs to Jake's family, great, great, great grandma used to own a brothel, also, his great-great-grandfather and uncle murdered some people. <laughs> None of us tells our family story that way. So I was wondering all week long, why does Matthew go out of his way to include and highlight the mess? Right? He, I mean, the interesting thing, if you didn't notice here, is when you get to the end and we get to Jesus, Jesus is the son of Mary, who is married to Joseph, It's not even his biological line here. Jesus is the son of Mary, but attached to this lineage. So it means that Matthew has gone out of his way to tie him to this family and to tie him to the mess. He could have just easily have said, Jesus is the type of Abraham. He will fulfill the promise. And he is the type of David. He will be the true king. But he is the God incarnate, and so he is born of a virgin. He could have done it that way. Instead, he goes out of his way to show and highlight the mess. Why does he need to be connected to all of them? The sinners, the outsiders, the hopeless, the forgotten, the uncles that have really shady pasts and stories. It's because when Jesus sets the family table, he does it to heal the family. When Jesus sets the family dinner table, when he says who belongs to his family and the family he chooses to step into, he does it as an act of love and healing. Because think about it, if Abraham's story doesn't have Jesus in the lineage, then Abraham is the story of a sad pipe dream that never got fulfilled, right? David's story becomes the king that was good for a couple of moments, but then he crash-landed and created so much chaos that the country could never, ever recover from it. But in Jesus, Abraham becomes the one that a promise was given to that one day would finally come. David becomes the king that could only be a shadow, but don't worry, the true thing is coming greater later down the road. Rahab, whose story would have been otherwise not something you would have talked about, now becomes the prostitute included in the family line to show who does Jesus identify with? The sinners. Why? Because he is the son of grace. Jesus heals the family line and all these family stories. When we take a seat at his table, all of it can be healed. He is the one that can redeem all of it. Why tie him to the mess? Because we're messy. We're messy, and we need a Savior who will identify with us, who will step into our mess, and in that mess can provide healing and hope. In Jesus, He restores everything. So I'm gonna invite the uh, band up to the table at this time, and I want all of us as we begin to step into the moment of communion to take out the elements and you take out your little package and you can fiddle with the cracker because I want you guys to have it open and ready so you can listen to this part. I know in the morning I was struggling to open it, but go ahead and grab the cracker. And I wanna bring us back to the image of the family dinner table. I want you to imagine the Christmas music, the bell ringing, I want you to imagine sitting at a table with Jesus, looking around. Welcome to the family table of Jesus, where even the most broken stories are redeemed and renewed. Church, welcome, welcome to the table that Jesus has set, where even the outsider and the worst sinners are invited to sit and belong. Welcome to the table where Jesus set where he can redeem everything. Welcome to the family table where the family is linked by blood, but not by DNA blood, but by this blood. The blood of a savior who gave his body and his blood on the cross. So go ahead and take that cracker and eat. Let it be a sign for you to sit and eat at the table that Jesus set. Go ahead and take the wine and drink. This family is a sign of the blood that makes us one family in Christ. We take and we drink just as all the church does. And Father, we wait for a time where we will eat and drink with you at the table we love Christmas and we love Advent, Jesus, but they are shadows of what we are wanting and what we wait for. The true feast, where the family table will truly be set. God, I ask that this season might be again and again a reminder of nothing but you and your goodness, Jesus. For how mighty you are, how you step into the mess, how you love us that way.
0: Amen.